It's good to be together as family and um, welcome. I was, when I was, got up to lead worship, I was reflecting. There's often, if you're here for the first time, welcome. It's nice to see you. My name's Tim. Help look after the family here with a, a great team. Um, <clears throat> and uh, we're an Anglican church. You may have guessed that from the building, but you probably didn't guess that from looking at me. Uh, I'm vicar here. Um, but you can, there are little signs every now and then that you can tell it is an Anglican church. I was reflecting on that as I was leading worship, looking at the front row, virtually completely empty. Um, yeah, it doesn't matter what kind of church you have, whether you have pews or sofas, the front row is often empty. So next week, we're going to put some sweets on the front rows. So first people in, but you have to not just, I know, you nick a sweet and go back. You've got to stay where you get the sweet from. We'll actually super glue them to the, suite, to the sofas. Um, so we're an Anglican church, and it's great to be together to kind of um, worship and kind of hear from God's word. We've been going through this season uh, looking at Ephesians. Uh, a week uh, a time looking at each chapter the challenge of the book of Ephesians is that there is so much in it there's so much theology there's so much amazing stuff um, those of you that have been around the last couple of weeks will know that I went to Ephesus this summer I had an amazing time in Ephesus with my family and um, uh, we uh, Sam and I and kind of Sarah we saw these incredible sights these incredible things and uh, what was really moving for me was seeing some of these um, Christian crosses scratched into the stonework in this city that was a kind of a center for pagan worship, idolatrous worship, where the whole culture was so not Christian and this small little band of brothers and sisters together started in this church that grew there and Paul came and ministered amongst them, was there for uh, quite a bit of time and then he went away and he, and he writes back, his heart's going out to them, he just thinks, I love these guys and they're in the midst of a challenging circumstances, a difficult city loads of wealth, loads of money, loads of pagan worship, and his desire is to write to this church and, and encourage them. And so he's been, he does that. And we've been looking through um, these chapters. And if you've missed it, they're online. I've put them up. Um, I think they work. So you can go up and listen to the chapters full because it's really helpful to get all of this stuff in context, isn't it? So this week, last week, we were thinking about alive in Christ. And today it's power in Christ, particularly that passage 314 to 21 is the one that I'm going to talk about. I mean, there's so much we could talk on, but I'm going to try and do that over the next two or three hours. So, uh, that's a joke. So, um, during the Depression, I mean, we're going through difficult times now, but during the Depression, I was reading recently, back in, in the 1930s, this was in America, um, I think there was the Wall Street crash in 29, and this terrible economic depression that hit the States. But during this period, there was um, a, a field owned by, uh, that was part of a sheep ranch, um, that was um, owned by a guy called Mr. Yates. And a bit like today's farmers, if you know anything about sheep farming, it's tough and you don't make a lot of money. In fact, a lot of sheep farmers they actually make a loss on what they're doing. But it, at the time, it was very, very difficult for him and he was kind of scratching out a living on this sheep farm. Uh, could, couldn't really even pay the mortgage, uh, was struggling to pay the debt that he owed, um, was kind of in arrears at the bank. Uh, had hardly any money for clothes for his kids, food for his families, like many people genuinely massively struggling, and he was relying on government subsidies just to get by. Day after day as he grazed his sheep, he would look at this kind of land that he owned that was kind of worthless and was causing him such pain and didn't know how to even pay his bills. And then one day, this... Uh, uh, kind of th these scientists arrive on, on his land... Miles, do you want to turn me down a bit? I'm a bit ringy. 
It may just be me. It may not make any difference when you turn it down. Um, and these seismologists arrived on his land, and they said to him, do you mind if we do a bit of drilling on your land? Because we think maybe there may be oil under here. We're not sure, but we'd, we'd like to, and we'd like to get permission to drill what they called a wildcat well to go down. Um, and then at 1,115 feet, they struck this huge oil reserve. The first well came in at 80,000 barrels a day. And then many other later wells were added, twice as large. 30 years after this first well was drilled, all the wells still had the potential of pumping 125,000 barrels of oil a day. And Mr. Yates owned it all, because it was his land. They'd been scraping this living on, just dying on his feet, not being able to get through. He had purchased the property, and he had the mineral rights for it. And yet he was living on this land, kind of surviving from government handouts, just scraping a living. He was a multi-millionaire living in poverty. That was the reality of his circumstances. The problem was he didn't know the oil was there. It was always there. It wasn't a new deposit of oil. It had always been there, but he just had no idea. And I think it's sometimes true for us as Christians. I think that's why Paul writes his letters at times. There's this truth that Paul's trying to say. There is staggering amazing truth, staggering things available to us in Christ, if we only realized it and lay hold of it and received it and accepted it. We don't often perhaps put these things to use in our lives in the way that God longs for, and it's there for us, this incredible power that Ephesians speaks of. One of the key things that many of us face in the days we live in is, is that we need power to overcome the obstacles, the challenges, the battles that we face against the world, the flesh, the devil, the, all the things that come against us. And so Paul writing to Ephesians, you kind of sense, you know, it's easy to read sort of letters like Ephesians as some sort of transaction, this person's trying to teach everybody. But actually, if you read it, you hear this father that's longing to help this fledgling church, longing for them to see breakthrough, longing for them to experience all the, the, the truth of the gospel. Which is why he prays for them, and you hear his prayer. If you remember, if you, if you remember back to chapter 1 when I talked about that, it, it begins with this prayer. He prays for this church with such affection, with such love. It's beautiful. And did you notice he prays in Ephesians 3 as well? So I want to talk and look about this prayer and think what it might mean for us. Prayer is everything. We know that, right? I mean, we know we should pray. We know we don't pray enough. But the truth is, you know, in these days, we need to pray more. And we're looking at how we can pray more. One of the things that we're, we're going to do is, is launch a new kind of prayer thing on a Monday evening on Zoom that people can just join in. It's going to go for half an hour at 7 o'clock. And if you want to join in, you can come and join in. And we'll email out to everyone. It's just a time just to be together. You don't have to jump in and kind of be vocal on there, but you can just be in the midst of others and pray. But there's something great about praying together, isn't there? And that's one of the great things about Zoom. We can do that virtually, but we can connect. Prayer. Prayer is so key. Corrie Ten Boom. Who's heard of Corrie Ten Boom? Quite a few of you. Um, my Sarah, she, she spoke a little while ago, actually, because part of her conversion was she read a book about, by Corrie Ten Boom and was so moved about this woman's life. But she said this about prayer. She asked this question. Is prayer your steering wheel or your spare tire? I quite like that. Is prayer your steering wheel or your spare tire? Is it the thing that you only ever reach for in an emergency? And actually, when you get around there, you discover that it's a bit flat and you haven't given much attention to it. 
Or is it the steering wheel? Is it the thing that brings direction to your whole life where kind of Jesus has his hands on your whole life as you navigate life with him? We're going to speak about prayer tonight. Chapters 1 to 3, we're at that kind of midway point. Chapters 1 to 3 in Ephesians, you could split it into... There's all sorts of ways of splitting Ephesians. I mean, into six chapters. That was quite a helpful way. But you can split it into half. Chapters 1 to 3 is about how God is gracious to us, put simply. It's explaining about the... the ludicrous grace of God and then chapters four to six perhaps is is kind of examining and asking well how do we live that grace out what does that look like for us as we move forward one to three talking about the glories and wonders of God and then four to six and this is what it needs to look like this is what it means for your life it's, it's true that chapters one to three don't include many imperatives they don't include many really any commands they don't tell you how to live as much as they tell us about the reality of God's grace, what God has done for us, that he's adopted us, he's loved us, he's chosen us, he's saved us by his grace. And it's really helpful. Before we're told to do anything, Paul's trying to help us understand that actually it's not about what we do, it's all about him. It's all about what he has done for us. Paul understands how difficult it can be. Before we start to obey, we need to receive from God. We need to receive fully everything that he wants to give us and help us understand so that we can live in the flow of all of that grace and because Paul knows that that's difficult he prays he prays for this church that they can receive this truth so we're going to look at that I think some of us find it hard to receive gifts anyone here find it hard to receive gifts being honest yeah there's a few hands definitely went up there are some people who are really happy giving gifts but when you receive them I mean, I mean, I don't understand those people. I love receiving gifts. But I do understand that there are some people who are kind of... I mean, it's a pretty British thing, isn't it? You know, oh, no, 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 no. You know, we, we find it hard to receive sometimes. And I think Paul understands that. Paul understands that actually sometimes we find it hard to receive God's grace because we don't feel worthy or we feel we haven't earned it. That's the point. But something inside us feels, well, we should have earned it. I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. The number of times I've prayed with people who've kind of come to faith and they're completely befuddled befuddled in that moment of grace where they're like, but you don't understand how bad I am. You don't understand what I've done in my life. How could God love me? I remember sitting with a guy, an older guy, who just was in pieces because as he looked back at his life, He was just like, I'm the worst. If you really knew me, you wouldn't want to know me. And I sat and I explained, but that's the point of the gospel. We're all that person. Each of us, all of us, you know, sheep that go astray, sheep that lose the way. There's no, well, I'm slightly better than you, but I'm worse. It's not about that. God's grace reaches out to all. and And it fuzzes with our head because our culture is all about you need to earn it. You need to work hard. You don't deserve it unless you've, you know, God helps those who help themselves. Have you ever heard anyone say that? It's such a demonic lie. <laughs> you know, I, I understand why people say that, but it's so contrary to the nature of the heart of God. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait until we'd kind of like, well, you know, they're, 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 they're trying their best, so I'll go while we were still sinners that's the bottom line of the gospel we're all really screwed not sure i can say that on tape but i just did that's the bottom line that's the state of humanity but god says 
But in Jesus, there's hope to redeem and rescue and save. It's all about God's grace. For those who find it hard to receive stuff sometimes, there's still this deep thing that says, oh, maybe I need to earn it, and maybe, and God says, no, no, it's grace. It's all grace. It's all grace. In order for us to be able to receive God's grace the way he intends it, and for it to change our hearts and change our lives and change our circumstances, something really deep has to happen in us, I believe. This can't be an intellectual thing. Oh, yeah, God is full of grace, therefore I'm going to follow him. Some, we have to have an encounter, we have to have an understanding that something happens in the deep part of who we are. And that's hard to explain where that is, isn't it? I mean, the Bible talks about your kind of your guts and your heart, and it's, it's all of this stuff in here. We all know where we mean. We can't necessarily point to it, but it's the deep place in us where God has to do something to help us to experience his grace. It's not just a mental thing. But Paul prays four prayer requests <clears throat> in this chapter. I just want to very briefly look at them. So verse 14 to 16. If you've got your Bible, uh, you can look at it with me. For this reason, I kneel before the Father. He's praying on his knees for whom his whole family in heaven and earth derives its name. And he says this, I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. There's actually two prayers going on there. We'll look at those just now. <clears throat> Paul addresses kind of God as Father and prays out of the glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. Paul's praying for like this inner strength in these disciples. What, what's he talking about? What does he mean? Well, um, the Greek word that she used is kratoi. Oh, it's going to be one of those nights tonight. Put my teeth back in. There's a Greek word he uses. And what it's talking about is this kind of inner strength. It's also found in one of the... It's really interesting. There's a story with King David. I don't know if you remember it. 1 Samuel 30. Before King David became king, while he and his men were being hunted by Saul, you remember that whole story, and he's been, Paul's being tracked down by, by Saul, and David's trying to be really honoring and trying to do the right thing and doesn't want to confront him and fight him. But he's being hunted by King Saul. The Amalekites attack David's encampment actually while he's away. They burn it, they take captives, they take captives all the women, all the children, and this news completely wrecks David and his men. 1 Samuel 30 verse 4 says this, So David and his men wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. I wonder if any of you have ever had that, where you've got to the point feeling so desolate, you, you, maybe you have physically wept, you, it's like you're emptied of every strength, every hope, you're just, you're desolate. Maybe you've lost a loved one, maybe you're struggling with something, maybe you're struggling with kind of health issues or mental stuff or someone you really know and love is just kind of feels really lost and you've felt really close to losing it you lose your strength to believe maybe you lose lost your kind of hope in god we see this verse that that paul uses in ephesians um two verses later 1 Samuel 30, verse 6. David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. Okay, so he's the leader. I'm sure lots of church leaders can identify with this. You're the church leader. It all goes slightly wrong or horribly wrong, and your congregation go, let's kill him. <laughs> I've seen, you know, I laugh about it. <laughs> it's funny because it's true. I've seen it happen with church leaders. 
it's tragic, and leaders in other institutions, you know, and the people turn against him because there's something in humanity that wants to find blame, right? Do we see this in our politics? I think we do, don't we, slightly? You know, there's this desire to blame, and, and the, the leaders are the, kind of... David's men around him are distraught. They've lost children, they've lost wives, they've lost the whole... Everything seems to have gone to put, and they want to stone him. And he is distressed, greatly distressed, because they were talking to stone him. It says this, Each one was bitter in spirit because of his sons and daughters, but David found strength in the Lord his God. So this is the same, this is the same word that's being used. It's a strength inwardly, in the midst of real kind of turmoil or challenge and it's in God it's not in your own resources it's not in your ability to kind of talk your way out of it it's not in the fact that maybe someone will come to your help or maybe we'll be able to come up with a better plan and we'll be able to get the women and the kids back it's, no everything is desolate the one thing where there's a source of hope is God and somehow in the reaching out to God a strength is found inwardly which is so strong That's what David finds, and that's what Paul's praying for this church, that in the midst of perhaps challenges, very real challenges, that they will find an inner strength that comes from God that sustains them. The truth is sometimes that we know, biblically speaking, that it's in weakness that God's strength rests upon us. Scripture tells us that, doesn't it? That sometimes we need to become less, like John the Baptist prays, may I decrease that you might increase? It's a great prayer, but it's quite a vulnerable prayer. Maybe we need to be weak in ourselves in order to experience God's grace afresh. I look at my own life, you know, I, I know at the times when I've been really broken by bereavement or loss, or I haven't been able to see the breakthrough that I've longed for in a, perhaps a, a family member's life, and you know, and I, I, I believe and I hope, and, and you become desolate and broken in that, and yet in that, you find God in a way that you could never imagine. I found God in, in times, probably because of the brokenness and the pain gone through, finding God's true strength in that. God, would you give us the inner strength that we need, even if it means we really do have to lose our own strength first. So first, Paul prays for them, and we pray for one another, for inner strength through the Spirit. And he prays for Christ to dwell in our hearts through faith. Ephesians 3.17 says in the NIV says, so that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith. There's actually two kind of, it sounds like there's sort of um, one prayer here, but there's two kind of, two verses, two prayers that are going on. I pray, says Paul, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. In verse 16, it talks about the glorious riches. Back in verse 16. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you. This is glorious riches that Paul wants us to understand kind of in the heart, deep down. And it made me think when I was reading about this glorious riches, kind of we talk about uh, and God's glorious riches kind of dwelling in the heart. Do you remember with Moses where there's the glory, God's glory that dwells somewhere? Do you remember where it dwells? It dwells in the tabernacle, doesn't it? In the tent. And it's visible, it's physical. There's this kind of tabernacle, God's this kind of tent, and God's presence, God's very presence comes and fills the tent, this cloud, this presence. I don't know if you've experienced that. There have been times in worship where um, I've been in worship environments, sometimes in really big places, sometimes in really small 
environments where just in the midst of the worship, you just sense this a weight. It's not heaviness. It's, I guess it's the Shekinah glory, the weight of God's presence. Tangible. It's, it's almost like there is a, there's a cloud that fills the place and you feel the weight of God's glory and it's a wonderful thing. You, you almost dare draw breath. God's presence and glory wants to be made manifest amongst us and it often is in worship but the, the glories his glory the riches of his glory wants to fill our hearts when king solomon um, built the temple god's glory came down i wonder what you know there was the tent there was the cloud that filled that and paul's praying for god's glory cloud through the holy spirit to fill our hearts with christ for that same sense of his presence you know, the truth is, <laughs> um, when God's presence comes, everything else gets in perspective. And I, I don't say that to, to, to belittle challenges. I remember when Rich Sayre's brother died suddenly um, a few years ago. We were talking about it the other day. She won't mind me saying. But I remember the pain of that moment. And yet I, ha I had to go and lead worship the next day at Holy Trinity. And, and it was like, oh, Lord, can I do this? But as we worshipped, God's presence and balm came. It didn't mean that oh, everything was fine. But when God's presence comes into the midst of our pain, to the midst of our questions, our frustrations, our anger, our uncertainties, when God comes in the light of him, suddenly everything has a new perspective. That there's hope, there's redemption, there's healing, there's love because God is good all the time so whatever circumstances we face Lord would your glory fill our hearts to hold us and in the days that we live in that's what the world needs to see a radiant church filled with hope you know we're not going to be I don't think we're going to be sheltered from all of the financial challenges that no doubt are going to hit this country the suffering church across the world is not sheltered from dictators and the trauma that often comes against our brothers and sisters in India or, you know, China, so many places that we could name. And who knows, maybe not too long, this country. But in those places, the tangible beauty of God's presence is often so manifest. I remember when I lived in the south of France in a community, in a Muslim community just on the edge, there was one girl there, she was from a Muslim, she was the most beautiful, radiant girl inside and out that I'd ever met. And then I found out some of her story. She was from um, North, North Africa, Algeria, Morocco, uh, and she had come to faith. She had found Jesus miraculously. And her father and her brothers went to kill her because she wouldn't renounce Jesus. And she had to flee that country, and she, she fled to uh, the south of France where I was living. And I didn't know anything about her story, but when I met her, I was just like, what is in this girl? There's just something. She shone. And then I heard from this missionary her story, and suddenly I realized this girl is filled with the glory of God in her heart. Despite the horrendous, if a family knew where they were, they were going to try and come and find her, drag her back, and if she wouldn't come back to kill her. Jesus' glory can fill our hearts and bring hope and strength and power, and she was an amazing, radiant woman who shared so beautifully. That's what the Holy Spirit wants to do, to point towards Jesus, to bring glory to Jesus and to help your heart be filled with the amazing truth of all he is, his power, his wonder, his might, the glorious riches that we have in him. 
so that in our heart, whatever comes against us, the external pressure, something inside pushes back far more glorious and says, but Jesus is always enough. Verse 17b. So we pray for inner strength through the Holy Spirit. We pray for Christ to dwell in our hearts through faith. And the third prayer request is this. I would pray that you being rooted and established in love. Rooted and established. He uses two kind of images here. The first is that of a, of a plant or a tree being rooted, something that kind of goes down deep, that isn't shaken. It goes deep into the soil and it draws life. Remember in Matthew's parable, you know, in, in Matthew's gospel, the parable Jesus tells about the different soils and the good soil and the shallow soil. The shallow soil is where kind of it just, it, it doesn't endure. When there's good soil, it feeds it, it nurtures it, it brings strength. A life rooted in the gospel won't fall away when times get tough and when things are difficult. It kind of holds us firm and steady. And so Paul's praying that we would be rooted and established in love. Established is um, it's like another word, like, it's like foundation, foundational word. Uh, a house with a good foundation won't fall when the storm comes against it. And Jesus tells that parable, doesn't he, in Matthew's Gospel. He talks about the kind of man who built his life on the rock and the one on the sand. Whoever hears these words of mine is like the man who builds his life on, on a rock. Jesus is saying, you can build your life on a rock, which is me, my ways, my heart. And when we're rooted, deeply rooted into him, attached to him, and when we've got a firm foundation, which is a trust in who he is, his words that bring us life, and it's not out of duty, it's not out of compulsion, it's in his love, rooted in his love. I wonder, do you really know the Father's love? I grew up for many years in a church environment I'm incredibly thankful for. And I heard, and I even sung the songs, Yes, Jesus loves me, yes, Jesus loves me, yes, Jesus loves me, for the Bible tells me so. Which is true, because it does. But just because someone tells you you're loved doesn't necessarily mean that you believe it. And I think for many years of my early Christian faith, I never really felt worthy. I never really felt acceptable. I never really felt known by God because I don't think I knew his love. When I worked in a, in a kind of primary school with children who suffered horrendous situations, some of them, and the most, you know, difficult and disruptive and sometimes the most quiet and the most broken were the ones whose home situations were so screwy and I don't think they felt secure. They didn't know true love. I mean, their parents loved them as best they could sometimes, but sometimes that love was so twisted. But the father is a good, good father who loves us perfectly. And, you know, I'd really encourage all of us to, to go on that journey of our hearts uh, restoration. We've just been away on a men's weekend, loads of us guys, um, looking at the Wild at Heart material, John Eldridge material, looking at the heart. Do I really know what it is to be a man whose heart is truly yielded to the Father and who knows that he's loved and healed and received by the Father? We, we, there's a lot of kind of <clears throat> Father Heart courses that are in the city. I'd encourage you to think about going on one of those if you haven't, because I believe there's always issues in our hearts that God wants to bring healing, to truly help us understand the depth of God's love for us, to be rooted and established in love. Not to know about his love, 
not to believe that he loves us, but actually be rooted, to actually be fed from his great love, to be firmly kind of our life built on a certainty of God's goodness and love. That's why Paul prays it for them, prays it for us. And it leads to the last prayer request for Paul. We pray that our hearts, we pray for our hearts to grasp the greatness of Christ's love. Verse 18, 19. So well known, isn't it? May have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide, how long, how high, how deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of the fullness of God. How wide it is. You know, God's love is so expansive. Like I said, I've met people who say, well, God couldn't love me because of this. Um, Sarah and I, when we lived in Bristol, we used to go into the, um, occasionally into the Hawfield Category A prison. People talk about prisons being, oh, well, they're, like, they're like holiday camps. Man alive, I've never been somewhere so scary in my life. You go in and the kind of the guards look at you. Like, I mean, they looked at me like I should be in there, actually, if I'm honest. Um, I, but it was, it was really, really scary. The, the wing we went into was the kind of lifer's wing, the wing with kind of, uh, I mean, they were sex offenders. They were kind of, um, some of them were murderers. They were the kind of the worst there. And we went in to do um, chapel and lead worship. I've never shaken so much playing a guitar in my life. Um, and then at the end, and these guys, I mean, they, you know, they look like you would imagine a lot of them. And at the end, I'd been asked to speak on a passage, and I spoke on the passage that God had given me was the story of the leper, when Jesus reaches out and touches the leper. He didn't need to touch him. He could have just spoken the word, but he reaches out and touches this man who was unclean, unclean to everybody, all the community around him. He didn't just say, yeah, I forgive you. Yeah, I heal you. He reaches out and brings and touch. That's love right there. Touching a man who's ritually unclean. He was a rabbi. That meant he, he, you know, Jesus touching a leper should have meant that he was kind of ritually unclean and absolutely ruined his ministry. Don't you know what you're doing? But he touches him. It's love. Didn't have to do it. That man who hadn't been touched for perhaps years because of his leprosy, Jesus touches him. That's love. That is what Jesus wants to do for you. To touch. His, his love is so wide. It reaches out to the unlovable, the unloved all sectors of society, whatever, whatever race, whatever culture, whatever background, whatever history, however bright or uh, however all the dropouts, whatever place you've been from, his wide arms embrace everyone, no matter how broken. How long? Well, his love lasts and lasts and lasts and lasts. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Romans 8 tells us, God chose us in him before the creation of the world, Ephesians 1.4. You know, God's love is outside of time. It lasts. It's so high. It's exalting. When I read Ephesians 2, we looked at the bit where it says, Christ promises to raise us up and seat us with Christ and pour out the incomparable riches of his grace on us in the coming ages. You know, it's, it's vast. It's in the heavens. It's, it's, it's for all eternity. The vastness, the height of his love for us, and the depth of his love, or we see the depth of his love in the cross, don't we? The cross is like a never-ending well. There's no depth to it. It's so vast, so deep. The depth of Christ's love manifests in the cross, taking the full burden of God's wrath and our brokenness on the cross so we could be forgiven. 
May we grasp that, says Paul. How wide, how long, how high, how deep is Christ's love, not just for us, but for you, you individually. So that's my prayer. That was his prayer for them. It's my prayer for us. And we're going to pray and just close. We pray for inner strength through the Spirit, that inner thing that holds you when everything else has fallen apart, that brings peace, that brings hope. We pray for Christ to dwell in each of our hearts through faith, that his glory would be manifest, that you would experience his presence. And when he comes with his presence, where the Holy Spirit is, there's freedom, so that you'd experience freedom from bondage and things that hold you, that you'd experience healing, inner healing and outer healing, healing of the heart, but healing of maybe physical things that you're struggling with as well, that his glory would come to you in your heart. Pray that you'd be rooted and grounded in love, that there'd be a kind of firmness and a holding that as you remain in him, in the vine, that you'd be so rooted and connected to him that his life-flowing goodness would flow into you, that there'd be a firmness under your feet that would hold you in the storms that come. And it would be not in knowledge or wisdom or great theology, as wonderful as those things may be, but it would be in an understanding and a receiving of his love. His love is what holds you. And that you would grasp then the greatness of his love, the breadth, the height, the depth. And you might think, well, okay, that would all be lovely, but I'm not sure it can happen to me. Well, Paul's got that wrapped up as well at the end in Ephesians 3, 20 to 21. He says this, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that's worked within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. I love that. I can imagine a lot. I'm a dreamer. I'm a a kind of um, pioneer, dreamer and visionary. I love thinking of those things. But I love the fact that God says, well, that's great. But I can do immeasurably more than you ask or imagine. So ask, because he can do more. Dream and imagine because he can do more. Let's pray.